40 to 45, like to be financially stable. And for me, I just, to have an end goal really helps you kind of set your, your path, I think. And with Little Caesars, you know, I, I go where opportunity goes. I was young. I was only 25, so I didn't really have anything holding me back. I've been in Texas my whole life. I was willing to go anywhere. Where I went for this first location, it was in East Texas, about two hours from my home. So it wasn't like a too far away. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have Shalom Patel. Shalin owns 108 franchises across two different brands. 79 of those locations are Little Caesars, and the other 28 are Wingstops. Shalin also gave us a heads up that he'll soon be purchasing Whataburgers, so he'll be adding a third brand to his portfolio. He's been doing this for 17 years and now has an executive team surrounding him as well for his platform. This is an awesome conversation that dives into his journey from going from managing one Little Caesars as an owner-operator while living in a motel to a full-fledged 100-plus unit platform. Enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. All right, so you just opened a Wingstop yesterday, you said, so that brings you to 29 Wingstops, 79 Little Caesars locations. We can get into kind of how you got to where you are today, obviously, but before you even got into the franchise game, what were you doing professionally and kind of what brought you to the point where you decided, hey, you know, I want to start buying franchises? Yeah, so I would say going back to when I was 14, I started working in the restaurant industry, mainly in my dad's restaurants. He had Church's Chickens and Subways. So yeah, so I started working at his restaurants, went to university, kind of did my own thing for a little bit, a year out, really just when I graduated, I took a year off, kind of just kind of assessed like what I wanted to do kind of going forward. I knew it was not a nine to five job. Um, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And um, my dad's buddy gives him a call saying, hey, you know, Little Caesars is taking applications now. Um, they've gone bankrupt in the 90s, I think. And uh, that was new $5 hot and ready concept that was coming out. And my dad mentioned that to me. And I was like, you know, what? this kind of excites me. <laughs> So we gave uh, Little Caesars a call, applied, kind of got on board. Um, I had to move to Nacogdoches, Texas, um, opened that first one there, and then pretty much lived in a motel room for a year and managed that first location. So wow, uh, you call me manager. Yeah. I mean, I hired, fired, did accounting, did all the payroll, pretty much everything. Construction, I GC'd my own project as well, just to learn, learn everything. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I started. Didn't really work for anybody prior to the restaurant industry. Um, but just always had the entrepreneurial spirit to do something. Um, How many church chickens and subways in total did your father own when you were growing up? Uh, he had like two, two, three subways, maybe like five churches. Um, he'd sold them all pretty much when I got into college. He got rid of all his restaurant 
businesses. Um, so, and did you ever think before buying that first Little Caesars, you know it better than most, restaurant margins aren't necessarily the highest. Was there any concern there? And maybe thinking, hey, like I'll pick a like I like franchises, but maybe a different industry. Or did you just kind of believe in the repeatability and scalability of it from day one? Yeah, I really like the Little Caesars in particular, um, just because of the simple model they had. Literally, they sold like four products, and I thought that was amazing. Pizza, you know, nationally is the number one selling product, so I knew it was the right kind of industry to be in when it comes to food. People are always going to eat pizza. And just like with any other franchise, you got to do your research. Once you apply, make sure you talk to other franchisees, right? That's For me, that was the most valuable part of the whole process is get to that part where you're talking to other franchisees on the phone and really learning the P&L because that's really what's driving – in the end, is going to drive that decision for you to invest the funds into that franchise concept. So just learning a lot about the P&L. And for me, I was an owner-operator, so I didn't have that manager salary up front. So that was really helpful too, right? I mean, when you're at the – site every day for a year i mean you're not only controlling labor but you're controlling everything in the store right so customer satisfaction being hot and ready you're really just driving the business and that was the best way for me to start was being in the store every day because i knew it would be successful if that was the case if that first one doesn't do well you're not doing that second one so it's very critical for that first one to be in there every day and busting your butt so that way, when you are ready to leave, you have a bench set up and can go open that second one. No, for sure. Yeah. And I, I totally agree that speaking to existing franchisees is the best resource you can have before buying. And I say that as someone who pretty much every day at this point between like a, a DM on Twitter or a newsletter replies, someone's asking me for advice on a franchise. And I may know someone and have spoken to people in the industry about a brand, so I might have some insights to offer and I might know the FDD information, uh, you know, off the top of my head. But uh, I always say that it's just, hey, like, take this with a grain of salt, like the best person you can really talk to isn't the franchisor, isn't me, isn't any broker or consultant. It's someone who's already operating the business. Uh, So love that you mentioned that. All right. So for that first Little Caesars. Did you, uh, it, that was a, you acquired an existing location? Oh, no, you said you built it from scratch, right? Yeah, so I was tell people we did it the hard way. We, <laughs> new store developed the first 50 locations. So The first 50? Yes. Wow, so, that's a lot. Okay, nice. Yeah. Site selection, leasing, construction, hiring. I mean, we were involved in all those phases, so. For yeah. that first location, you know, did you have to take out a loan? You know, what was kind of the funding process? Because that's, that's a common hurdle that once you get over, it can make things exponentially easier. But that first location for a lot of people, right, can be tough to have the financial means to do it. Yeah, I, I get asked this question a lot. And SBA is the way. So I'd say if you're starting off, I mean, for them to give you up to $5 million at a 10% down, for me, I think if you're a beginner, that's the best product out there. It's a little bit more paperwork. It might be a little bit more expensive. But to be able to put down 10% on any project, I think, you know, most people, cash is the main issue, right? So if you can only put down 10%, it's a win-win. And not only that, SBA, like, will also fund you working capital. So if you put that working capital dollar high enough, that money that you put down at 10% is essentially coming back to you as, you know, a slush fund for you to get your business started. So it's for me, it's almost 100% financing if, if you look at it that way. And 
I would highly take advantage of that. And it's a very repeatable program. Once you do the first one with the lender, the second one is it's just, it's, it gets easier, right? You're not doing all the same amount of paperwork. It's just an ad location. So uh, we also did that with, with a couple of acquisitions. When we got further down the line, we used SBA loan for those too. And that was a harder process because of the valuation process that they do. But same thing, 10% down. Um, I mean, you can't beat that. Definitely. No, it's, it's a fantastic option and uh, w- way for people to become a business owner with minimal cash down. I, th- I think the important thing, if someone's newer to the podcast, they might not know this, but for the SBA to fund, you know, 90% of a business, it's pretty much only the the national proven brands that they're going to do that with that have like some serious proof of concept. So Little Caesars definitely fits that criteria. But you know, you're upstart franchise with maybe 10, 20, 50, even anywhere before 100 locations, it could be tougher to get uh, financing via the SBA. So just food for thought for folks out there that with the big brands, it can definitely work like that. Um, But the smaller, lesser known ones, it'll be tougher. But anyway, so going from that first location, I guess before we even get to the business side of it, I kind of want to learn in from how what what was going on inside your head, right? Because you're recent-ish college graduate at the time, it sounds like you moved, you relocated your life to a degree to the area of the Little Caesars, lived in a motel, I think you said. I mean, just personally, like, and emotionally, like, how how did you kind of manage that? Uh, Because I think of that, and it's like, I mean, you're, I don't know if you were close to family, like, did you have a a significant other at the time? You know, what's going through your head? and, And what is driving you? Like, what's the vision that's telling you, okay, this is worth it to kind of, you know, make some sacrifices for the business? Yeah, great question. I think for me going into college, I kind of knew I was going to be an entrepreneur and that my end goal to retire was like 40 to 45, like to be financially stable. Yeah. And for me, I just, to have an end goal really helps you kind of set your, your path, I think. And with Little Caesars, you know, I, I go where opportunity goes. I was young. I was only 25, so I didn't really have anything holding me back. I've been in Texas my whole life. I was willing to go anywhere. Where I went for this first location, it was in East Texas, about two hours from my home. So it wasn't like a too far away. So if I needed to come for a weekend or for a day, whatever, I can just drive back. So it wasn't too crazy. Still, still close enough to call home, I would say. So that, that was a good opportunity right there. But I think just having that long-term plan, right, and goal kind of just get you focused a little bit. And I was being young, you know, I was young. And you really, when you're young, you just don't think about really being set to a certain spot and being held hostage, right? So you gotta be able to take up, be able to leave if you need to, you know, pack up and leave. My dad says that I told him after I opened the first one that I was gonna be done after six. I don't remember telling him <laughs> that, but uh, that's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> so he always reminds you of that and you know, you can always have a goal, but it always changes, man. Like once you get to a certain point, then you just, a new goal comes and you're just continuing growing and things like that. But at the age of 25, when I saw a P&O for a Little Caesars, I was like, man, you know, if I can make six figures in my first restaurant while operating it, imagine if I had five or six of those, right? And, and that's kind of where where you kind of start thinking, like, hey, you know, I need to get to this five or six. So I can afford somebody to to supervise them, and I'm not the one supervising. So, to get to that that first, you know, level of scale was the most important factor, I would say, for me, especially when it comes to picking a brand. You, you don't want to do it for one because that's for me. That's just buying a job. 
you want to make sure you can scale it to at least five or six where you can afford the, uh, the overhead support where you're not doing the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, so I guess along those lines, right? So you're the owner-operator of that first location. How did you, and I guess, at what point did you scale to a second location? And maybe did you build multiple after the first in one shot? Or could you paint a picture of how you went from one to multiple while also managing, right, the debt servicing from that SBA loan? Yeah, so the first one um, was doing really well. I didn't open the second one until two years afterwards. Okay. So it was it was a pretty long time. And the main reason for that was, A, you know, I needed to establish cash flow with my first Little Caesars. So that takes some time for the lenders to start seeing that. And second, to hire the right manager for when I, when I do go open that second one. That took a longer process. I went to about two of them actually before I found the right one. So the, those two factors really kind of delayed the, the second one. I'm happy that I did that. I think building a foundation was really critical for the future growth. So so about two years to build that second one. And then after that, about a year, about one every year for the first five. Essentially five and five years is kind of where I settled that for those locations. Um, so I did it really slowly and made sure that I had the right people at each restaurant before I opened the next one. Okay. So after that first one, did you ever go back to like being in one of the stores most days or did you find at that point you had the cash flow where you could afford it was kind of like every store just had a dedicated manager and you were you were the one overseeing all those stores as you grew yeah after we opened the third one is where i kind of designated one of my best manager to kind of oversee all of them while he was managing one location if that makes sense so it's kind of like a hybrid kind of guy since i hired really good managers at that time they didn't need as much oversight because my main focus honestly was on the, all the other stuff of not operating a business, really focusing on the leasing, the real estate, marketing, you know, hiring, make sure if we had any turnover, I'd hire the manager, right? Just focusing on the other stuff besides making pizzas. So that's kind of where my focus was, honestly, after like store number three. And with those managers, you know, were you kind of pitching them, especially at that early stage, on this vision of, hey, like, you know, we have three locations now, but this is going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, did you kind of use that narrative of your ambitions effectively to help with retention? No, at that age, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, for me, it was just like, hey, I, you know, I got a viable candidate here. Let's hire this person. Let's move on. I mean, I never thought we would own 117 restaurants or whatever it is today. Um, you know, six was the number, magic number for me back in the early days. So. All right. Well, okay. If there is a moment where that, that sticks out in your mind, I mean, you know, for folks who uh, are listening to this and maybe driving around or whatever, if you go to vibrestaurants.com, that's vibe as in V-I-B-E, restaurants.com, that's Shalin's website of, you know, I guess the Hold Co., right, that owns all these restaurants. And it says it right in the front page, 107 locations in 11 states, right? So how do you go from just six Little Caesars in Texas to that, you know, is there a cash injection? Like, did you raise money at some point? I mean, cause this is a serious, like a serious platform uh, that you've built now. So yeah, is there any, just some key moments that have, have really gotten you to this point? Yeah, I'd say the key moments financially is we are self-funded 100%. I'm really proud of that. I mean, we probably, I'd like to joke to people we live paycheck to paycheck because we do reinvest 100% of our, I mean, 100%, but most of our funds back into the business 
defining moments for me personally is when I partnered up with my two business partners. Having them part of the team, I mean, you know, one person can do one person's work, but three people can do like five people's work. And without those two guys and kind of dividing kind of what we're doing as part of our company has been amazing. To have two other guys that are aligned like I am in our vision, to be able to agree to disagree on certain things and not take it personal. Um, yeah, they're like my brothers now. So it's, it's really great when you have two business partners that you can trust and not really have to worry about, you know, it's like just divide and conquer kind of thing. I trust you to do your job and they trust me to do my job. And that, I think that's really, really been critical to kind of where we're at today because we, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses and we play to them really well. So people, processes and profits, man, those are the three things that our CEO preaches and that's kind of what we live by. You get the right people in the right places and you have the right processes in place. The money will come where you can start reinvesting and grow your business. So the people aspect is, has definitely been the most critical. Yeah. And, and I guess let's start just with um, the founders that, that are listed on, on Vibe Restaurants. Uh, you know, are they friends or, or like, how did you meet them and how did you know they were the right fit to help you grow your organization? Yeah, so Faisal, uh, they're both actually they're both brothers and they're college buddies of mine. Actually, um, we all went different paths after college. Um, Faisal went to work in some clothing place in California. Irfan went to Dubai to work for hotel consulting out there for JLL. You know, their families are also entrepreneurial spirits, and uh, we've been buddies since college. And I just knew that we both had different uh, kind of. I would say personalities that really bounced off each other well. Like I'm the more analytical kind of CFO type back office guy. Faisal loves new shiny things, so new development and things like that. And Irfan is, he loves to talk and that's why he's a great CEO and he, he works on the passion <laughs> and the culture and all that. So it really works out well. We all took a personality test way early, like 10 years ago and like really pinpointed what our strengths and weaknesses are. And that's how we divided our roles and responsibilities. So. Very cool. Yeah. So it sounds like you thought intelligently about the different skill sets you guys had, but could you talk about like the, let's call it the financial flywheel? Because I, I don't think enough people fully understand how it works. And, you know, like I had uh, Greg Flynn on the podcast a few weeks ago and he, he somewhat went into it, but just how does the funding work where, um, you know, like a little Caesars cost, I think, Anywhere from, at least according to their FDD, anywhere from like 400K to 1.7 million. So pretty big range there. But, you know, are you just building each new store or, you know, when you're acquiring new stores that are, you know, already open and operating? I mean, is that purely from the profits of your other stores or are you taking loans out against the profits and kind of even maybe against the property and equipment of those other locations? Like, how, how does this flywheel work? And, you know, could, do you mind just giving people a primer and like, how it accelerates as you get bigger and bigger. Yeah, so I think it's the exact opposite. I think the less stores you have, the easier it's to get money. And the bigger you get, the harder it is to get money. That's why I look at it personally. But yeah, so mainly, and that comes down to, you know, back in my day, in early days, it was $250,000 to build Little Caesars. Wages were lower, right? Um, commodity prices were lower. You can do low volume and, and still make decent cash. So as you continue growing, and what's going to happen is that cash that you're making, the bank's going to put a number on it. And let's just say 4X is kind of what they'll lend on. The gross leverage is what they call it to, to start off. So they'll take your EBITDA times four. 
So as I say, it's $320,000. That's usually what they're willing to give you as far as a loan. Now, if you're in for $200,000, that means you have $120,000 of space left kind of on your, your leverage. So what can you do with that $120,000? Well, maybe you go open a new location and use that 120 as like the down payment for your new location, right? So now you're not putting any dollars down in that new location and you're getting it essentially 100% financed. Or you're doing an acquisition and it's a one-store acquisition and you're going to need to put $100,000 down to buy it with some debt. Well, you just have you have 120 here sitting in an embedded equity that can help cover it. So now, now you just bought a, another restaurant with zero dollars down, and that's how you can really double and triple in size over time and compound. You could do that. You can really realistically double in size every five years if you're patient and do it that way. Pay off some debt every few years, and when you're ready to buy something, just refinance the debt and use that embedded equity you have. All that debt you paid off, you use it to buy more stuff, more restaurants or open more restaurants. So it's really a compounding kind of waterfall effect, but you just gotta be patient and be really patient. It's taken me 17 years of overnight success to get to this, this level. So, I mean, we were able to double in the last two and a half years just because of that, that compounding over time, right? And just compounding and compounding. So can you, because I've actually never heard that. How does like the, what you said first, which is that it could be in a way you think of it, it gets tougher as you scale up, right? With the banks, are, are they not, uh, or whoever, whoever's doing the lending, they're not just, um, right, if they're giving you uh, a loan based on like four times your EBITDA, wouldn't, like, right, as you have more stores, that EBITDA number goes higher, so then the multiple just gets higher, or does it work differently? No, the multiple stays the same, but there's another ratio that really comes into play once you get into, like, a million dollars, maybe even 500,000 EBITDA or above when you start dealing with restaurant lending groups or franchise lending is the lease adjusted leverage ratio. So that ratio is a very critical ratio when it comes, once you get to a scale for a restaurant group, um, it's what every restaurant lender kind of bases their lending on. And what it essentially does, it's a calculation where it takes like your future rent payments and your future debt payments and kind of does a calculation based on your EBITDA and your rent. I can give you the more exact formula if you need it, but that ratio has been the most critical ratio for growth because what that does, it tells you what your capacity you have to grow um, as far as that embedded equity that I was talking about earlier with that 4X gross leverage. That number gets thrown out and the LALR is like the golden number once you get to scale. So, and every lender has different appetites for that ratio should be, and it's all priced in the rate. So like, Wells Fargo or something like that, they, they'll be like a five or a five and a quarter LALR. Well, their interest rate be really cheap, but then that gives you less capacity to grow. But you can go to another lender that's a six LALR, higher interest rate, but it gives you capacity to grow, right? It gives you more ability to take on debt, essentially. So I've learned a lot about that ratio um, just because once you have a certain scale, lenders are definitely more critical of your P&L because you're talking about bigger dollar amounts, right? And they're not only going to be uh, lending on the P&L, they're going to be lending on, on the person as well in the company. So because there will be, you know, one every five years, there'll be a bad time. You know, that lender relationship is going to be very critical. You don't want them to call your note, but they need to work with you as, as a person and a, and a company to get you through the tough times. And 
that's been very helpful for us to have that relationship with the lender that's been able to work with us because it's happened a couple of times where food costs have been crazy high for a year or now we're busting our ratios. Well, at least the lender knows it's temporary and not permanent and we'll get back to where we need to be next year. They might give you less money for growth temporarily, but at least they're not turning off the faucet 100%. Okay, so that makes sense then. Effectively, right, it comes down to then as you scale, you know, the future rent payments, obviously that number gets a lot bigger. So that throws the ratio off, not necessarily in your favor. Yeah, okay, understood. All right, well, that's good to know. All right, so just moving along kind of in the journey of Vibe Restaurants then, at what point did you expand to the second concept, which is Wingstop? And kind of what was the thought process there going from pizza to now buying and being involved with the second brand that, you know, obviously it's not necessarily competitive, right, with Little Caesars? Yeah, so we've always looked at other brands in the past, just being entrepreneurs. We always wanted to see what the next big shiny thing is. Um, we looked at Pinkberry at one point. We did open some Witch Witch sandwiches, but we got out of that business. And then we looked at Wingstop. We really wanted to focus, especially after looking at Pinkberry and Witch Witch, we really wanted to focus on a brand that had at least 800 to 1,000 locations nationwide. So that was very critical for us. And then also to have just higher volumes and historical volumes. Wingstop, as publicly known, has had like 20 years of same store sales increases. It's, it's amazing those franchisees stayed on for so long because they were doing really <laughs> low volumes for a long time. But man, they're kicking butt right now. So for us, that was very critical. You know, they got to have mass. That way we know it's been tested in many sites, many locations, right? We don't want to be the guys being the guinea pigs and things like that. And we love the simplicity of it, right? You're just frying wings and selling French fries. Like once again, it comes down to the Little Caesars model. It's just, it's simple. And we really liked Wingstop because there's no national competition to Wings with other brands, right? Like Maybe Buffalo Wild Wings, but that's more of a sit down and a bar and everything. Yep. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yep. They just advertise beer and, and football. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So when you got in, you know, was there, uh, let's see, what is it, 28, 29 Wingstops? So did you acquire existing ones? Did you do new builds there? What was kind of the journey just specifically within Wingstop? Yeah, so we started that in 2020, right before COVID hit, or right in the heart of COVID. Um, so out of those 28 in the last three years, or two years, actually, wow, it's been oh, crazy time flies. It's about half and half uh, new store development and acquisitions. So it's been a good, good hodgepodge. It's been great to have the acquisition opportunities this time versus the Little Caesars. Just it kind of helps leverage our GNA a lot quicker. And they're also in markets that we're, we're planning to grow. So it just made sense geographically for us. So yeah, 28 and two years is kind of where we're at. It's amazing. And and on the note of GI, right? I mean, because you have GNA, that is, um, and that's general and administrative uh, expenses for anyone who isn't familiar. But, you know, with the scale you're at, right? Is there any, I, I guess uh, if you're willing to share it, you know, be curious generally what percentage your GNA costs are as like a percentage of revenue. And I'm just curious too, if like there's any, do you find any operational synergies, right? Between the two concepts? Yeah, so GNA is, is always a, a roller coaster number depending on your size and 
what your future growth plans are. So, but typically around three to 6% is kind of where your GNA is going to lie. You'll get to the five, 6% when you're at a bigger scale and you really want to ramp up your growth because you're hiring so many people in advance, right? You don't want to be reactive, you can be proactive. So you really are spending a lot of money on your GNA. But I think three to 6% is a good rule of thumb, just depending on where you are in your growth stage and if you're hands-on or not in the business, so. Okay. You know, is there operational symmetries between the two brands? Yeah, not really operational, uh, more in the back office, maybe accounting and things like HR, right, marketing, but operational really keep the two brands separate. We don't want people wearing multiple hats with multiple brands. It just can, it's just for us, it, you don't get the focus you need out of that employee then. Maybe facility maintenance, we do kind of have some synergies, but okay, I would say, uh, up to like maybe the director level, there's probably no synergies. We try to keep it separate, really. Yeah, I could see that, especially from a focus perspective. That makes total sense. Um, you know, I'm curious because we're talking about two national brands, right? Pretty much everyone knows of Little Caesars and Wingstop. And Little Caesars especially was, uh, they were, you know, the sponsor of the NFL, I think, for a few years. And I'm, Oh, wait, no. Did they just become the sponsor and Pizza Hut got dropped? Yeah, first time ever. Yeah, this, this year. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, so now they are. Yeah, so do you, and obviously like Wingstop has celebrity backing of like Rick Ross and, you know, they're running national TV campaigns. You know, as a franchisee, do you monitor these national campaigns or do you just like see commercials and you're like, oh, like that's my brand. And like, A, do you monitor, but B, like, do you feel the effects of it? Like, do you think that there's a noticeable difference, right, when... Little Caesars becomes the NFL sponsor versus before that. Oh, for sure. You know, the commercials are something that Little Caesars and Wingstop they'll always send to us prior to broadcasting just to show us what's coming out, right? Because they're always aligned with the LTO that's coming out, right? The limited time offer. So yeah, we're always going together. So they just want to show you just to kind of give you an idea of what's going out there as far as marketing pieces, which is nice. Um, these campaigns are all about driving traffic to the restaurant. So yes, the NFL has been great for us so far. So glad we did that. And then with Wingstop, just the, their marketing is on point. I mean, they did an amazing job with all the colors and flavors. And, yeah. They're still a, a young brand in my eyes, and um, still a lot of awareness needs to happen in that brand, but they're doing a really great job of, of hitting that. I feel it more with my friends because on a daily basis, they're not really Little Caesars customers, but they're Wingstop customers, so they'll see the Little Caesars commercials and talk to me about that. And, <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah. And when you look at like your organization, you know, is there a specific hierarchy structure that you have in place? You know, from the store level, right? Is it, uh, you know, oftentimes I find multi-unit owners have, it's almost like a pyramid structure, right? Where every store has their own manager and then there's like area directors or, or regional managers, whatever you want to call it, where then someone oversees maybe five to eight locations. And then that rolls up maybe to like the corporate office. Is there a specific structure that you have in place? Yeah, I think you pretty much summed it up there. We have a store manager and then we have a, we call ops coach that sees five to eight locations just depending on geography. And then we have a market coach that handles about four to five ops coaches. And then above that, we have our kind of director who handles like three to four market coaches. That's kind of how it's set up. Okay. And does like Little Caesars or Wingstop or, you know, is there anyone who kind of coached you as the big franchisee to do that? Or is that just something you figured out over time? So we made a critical hire in 2017 to bring on a seasoned uh, COO. 
And he's really implemented a lot of his past learnings and experiences into our company. So he's really been driving all these operational changes and building the pyramid essentially in the work chart. So he, I mean, we have a learning development manager. We have just in our HR department, we have five people. We have a corporate recruiter. That's a hundred percent job is just to recruit for people. And now we hired somebody who's like an associate relationship manager who's really just focusing on our employees and making sure they're happy. Um, so these are all things that he's kind of brought to the table from his past experiences. So we're not the experts. We're good at being entrepreneurs. So we, we hire the experts to kind of do their thing now. But in the early days, we know we were just doing it as we go yeah. on the fly. No, for sure. That's great, though, that you kind of just hired that expertise effectively. So. Wrapping up here, I'm curious too, because this is a question, you know, I, I sent a tweet out uh, this morning just to crowdsource some questions and the, a big recurring theme was just, especially today, how do you manage the labor at the store level, right? Like, I mean, shift workers, part-time workers, it's hard to retain talent, especially in QSR right now. So do you offer above market rates or, I mean, have, have you, or is it just a dogfight every day and you're kind of struggling like the rest of the folks out there? Yeah, going back to your tweet, I had three buddies send me a screenshot of that tweet. And they're like, is that you? I was like, yeah. Wow. All right. That's, <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Funny. Yeah, I kept it pretty generic. Well, I guess I did. Yeah, I, I put the exact yeah. numbers. So that's funny. Well, they know me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're my buddies. So <laughs> um, yeah, man, going back to hiring. So yeah, that's, you know, during COVID, it was challenging. After COVID, it became less challenging. But man, the last two months have been the toughest in what we're doing. First, we invested in that corporate recruiter, and second, we invested in the association's relationship manager. But the corporate recruiters, I mean, she's going online and really figuring out a lot of ways to kind of bring applicants to the store. Facebook ads, I mean, you, you think about it, anything you can do online to kind of promote that site, right, for applicants. And another thing we're doing is really overhiring, especially when it comes to like new locations and things like that. We're overhiring knowing that people are going to quit. Because the attrition rate right now is just, I think every person that we, every two people we bring in, at least one is like leaving or close to that, like within a week. I mean, it's crazy. There's there's no magic formula right now. Luckily, we have a large organization and we, for us, we tell people that you're picking a career and there's a lot of growth opportunity in our company. And I think that's a big advantage for us because we are a growing company. We're adding a third brand in Whataburger. So that's going to be a great concept. And we're growing heavily in both brands we're in currently. So we're all young guys and people work for people. And if they know they have a great opportunity to grow in the company, um, they're willing to, to take that chance and stick it out. We revamped our whole uh, culture a few years ago, and it's all about, it's called experience vibe, experience life. So we kind of want to reward our employees through experiences now and not just cash. Because, I mean, they'll remember kind of, hey, the first time they went on a plane or, right, like on a cruise or even movie tickets or whatever it is, right? Like whatever level it's at, you want to just treat them through experiences so they have something to remember and not just not monetary. So that's kind of been a huge focus for us in the last few years as well. Um, and that's kind of really just, it really helps bring loyalty to your company when you do things like that. We sent our silly maintenance guy last year and his seven kids to Disney for a week. Like, so, and he, de he deserved it, right? So, but just doing things like that will help bring retention like crazy. That's great. And we do overpay. We overpaid. We, I mean, there's, there's no minimum wage anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's market wage. So 
you just got to pay more and that's just the name of the game i love the uh that you're the experience aspect that's really smart i haven't heard of anyone doing that but you're right it is more memorable and love to hear that um and it's also interesting too that uh because my final question was going to be just long term you know what's the vision for vibe um and it sounds like you're going to be adding a third brand in whataburger so that's pretty cool um but yeah is there a long-term vision like do you kind of want to greg flynn it and just keep growing forever <laughs> or uh you know is there a potential exit in the future that you'd see more brands that beyond whataburger you know how, how do you see this playing out over the next decade or, or even longer maybe yeah i feel like my partners and i talk about this for every week <laughs> <laughs> it's hard it's, it's easy for one person to get aligned it's hard for three people to get aligned on this but you know, I think we're all young, so we definitely want to do this for at least the next 10 years. What happens after that, we don't know, but we're willing to, to blow this thing up. We've built the platform now for 17 years, and we have all the people in the right places, and we're ready to just take this thing to the next level. We're in two great brands, joining a third one. We're happy with all three of them. There's a lot of opportunity in them, so I, I think we're just going to focus on those three. Um, maybe down the line, we can buy a brand one day. Who knows? We've always thought about that, but... It's easy to be a franchisee and to execute, right? You're not really thinking about much. It's a lot less risk. It's been done for you. All you're doing is executing it and doing the easy part. When you start owning brands and starting a new brand and all that, it's a lot of work and a lot of risk. But we're all young, so we're just looking to blow this thing up as big as possible, at least in the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be exciting to see what you can do. And, but it's also, it shows, I think, a level of patience too, right? Because, I mean, at 107, you know, total stores that would command a pretty big price if you if you did decide to sell it and you didn't take any outside capital so i mean you and your your two founders there i mean you're deferring i don't think if someone's familiar with deals in the franchise space i mean 100 locations at this size that's going for nine figures so well over 100 million dollars i would imagine right yeah we haven't tested the market yet but i would assume so with the growth we have coming up so yeah Finding a sale is very, very hard. <laughs> okay. But yeah, yeah, I would say it's not bad. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it'll be fun to watch, and um, I'll be looking out for, for the announcements uh, for that Whataburger acquisition. Yes, sir. But uh, yeah, look, Shalin, this has been fun. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. Is there anywhere online where people could follow you or Vibe Restaurants that uh, you know they can just uh, keep tabs on? Yeah, we're very active on LinkedIn. So just follow Vibe Restaurant's LinkedIn page or, just, or you can follow mine as well too. Yeah, we're very active on there, so. Beautiful. All right, awesome. Yeah, folks, we'll plug Vibe Restaurant's LinkedIn page in the show notes. And yeah, thanks again, Shalin. We'll talk soon. Well, thanks, Wolf. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.